And as you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bible, and uh, you can open up to the book of First Peter chapter 2. I want to begin by reading the text for us this morning, so if you could just turn your attention to uh, chapter 2, verse 18. We're going to read all the way through verse 25, and here um, we see that Peter is continuing on with this idea of proclamation by submission. Um, we've seen that God has said we have a message to preach but the way we live is going to either bring um, credibility to the message we're preaching or it's going to discredit the message that we are preaching. And he's calling us as his people to be a people who are in submission to God first and foremost, but to the authority structures that he has put in place as the spheres in which we can maybe perhaps most powerfully display our submission to Jesus Christ. So last week we saw that we're called to be in subjection to the governing authorities, the government, those institutions that he has put into place. And here he moves into a different sphere of life and he addresses specifically servants. You'll notice that word in verse 18. It's the very first word. And so let's read this together. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter here is speaking to a very specific category of people in a very specific societal situation and context. He's speaking to servants who have an earthly master, but what he does here is helpful for all of us to consider. You see, he broadens his application to all Christians in effect, he wants all Christians to consider themselves as servants. Actually, he has made this clear in the previous section. If you're here last week, we, we saw this already. So just look back quickly to verse 16 with me. He talks about our freedom and not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but look at this, living as servants of God. He's already told us that this is actually our spiritual status. It may not be um, in this context or in our context, our physical status, we may not be servants in the same way that he is describing in this context, but we are all servants of Christ. We are all called to this position. If you are in Christ today, you are called to this position, this status, this role as a servant. And since that is true for all of us, if we're in Christ, we must hear and heed the scriptural exhortations that apply to servants, that teach us how to be faithful servants. R remember, every one of us, if you're in Christ, is going to stand before Jesus Christ on a final day, 
And the hope is to hear these words, well done, good and faithful, what? Servant. And so instantly, we are drawn into this passage by nature of our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. There is some very specific applications that flow out of this because of the context he is addressing, and we're going to get to those, but we need to see what is at stake here for all of us. We're all called to live as servants of Jesus Christ. That is to be our primary um, identification in this life. What is at stake in all of this? According to Peter, it is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, how serious is this for me to take? How important is this for me to understand? Peter says this, everything is at stake when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have the potential to display the beautiful nature of the gospel through how you live in submission, or you have the opportunity to fully discredit the gospel in the eyes of the watching world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake, and so therefore it is of the utmost importance for us to understand exactly what we are called to here. And we've used this line, we used it last week, and I'm going to use it again this week. This idea, it kind of captures this sense of what Peter is getting at in this overarching kind of perspective of these verses. My message is magnified, in this section we see this, by how I serve in my setting. My message is magnified by how I serve in my setting. And we see this first, this is explained to us, how do we do this? Here's how. First, we notice this, that we need to embrace the mandate of a servant, which is to do everything we've just talked about, submit ourselves. This is the mandate of the servant that is laid out for us. Right here in verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. He gives us this holistic picture of what it looks like to submit in our settings. Now, the term translated slave here is actually different from the normal term that's used and translated as slave throughout your Bible. It's not the term doulos that is often translated as slave or servant. It's a different term that actually refers to a category of slaves. In the ancient world, there were different categories of slaves. There were field slaves. There were slaves who held different positions. Here, this describes this idea of a household slave. He's getting into a societal structure in which we can see some very clear lines of authority that have been given. These are lines of authority, by the way, that were recognized in the Roman world. So the Greco-Roman world, in other words, had a context for understanding this idea of authority. And so he looks at Christians who are living in this context, and he says, listen, you need to respect the, the authority structures of your society, and in fact, you need to learn to live within them in a way that is going to display the gospel to the world around you. People became slaves in the ancient world through a variety of different ways. Um, it's, it's very different. You know, when we think of slavery, we often think of North American or European slavery where it was slavery that was based upon a race. It was a racial injustice. Um, that's not the case in the first century. It's a different kind of view of slavery. People became slaves, for example, through war, through poverty. People would sell themselves as indentured servants into slavery to pay off debts. It was a way in which they could earn some money. People were born into slavery if their parents were slaves. Slaves, for the most part, were treated very well in the ancient world. In fact, slaves could be well-educated. A slave might actually hold the position of a doctor or a teacher or a shipbuilder or even a city treasurer. 
but these nobler tasks were actually exceptional. A large portion of the Greco-Roman world were considered slaves. Slaves in this time were under the control of their masters. They were considered inferior by nature, that needs to be stated. They were viewed in one sense as property. And while they were generally well-treated, they could still suffer brutal mistreatments at the hands of their masters. They could be beaten, their masters could brand them, and their masters could legally abuse them. Now, it's helpful to understand that the New Testament does not advocate um, slavery in any way, shape, or form. Um, Peter is speaking, though, this is important, to a people in their setting. He's speaking to them in their current context, in the situation in which they live. And so what we see here is they are being called to serve in their setting. This is where you are finding yourself, and, and likely, by the way, this is the position probably for a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians are finding themselves as household servants in this context. He says, rather than rebel against the structures of the day, even though they are not necessarily right or just, he calls them to respond appropriately within them in a way that actually magnifies the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, no exact parallel exists in our modern society today. There's no exact parallel to um, ancient slavery with our current day. But um, the fact that this was by far the most common kind of employer-employee relationship in the ancient world actually allows us to apply these principles in our work settings. This is probably the most faithful way to apply this in our context. Every one of us has an employer. Most of us are an employee. And so we can consider how these principles apply in our setting. Now, it's, it's interesting just to think about this idea of being in submission um, to authorities, especially in employer at that. You see, in our kind of Western context, we tend to resist Peter's teaching. And, and I know this is the case even last week. I know people really struggled with the idea that, idea that we need to submit to the government. I mean, that is a foreign concept in many people's minds today. In, in our cultural context, we treasure our independence we criticize our authorities, and we honor our rebels. I mean, I want you just to think for a moment, when was the last time you said something nice about your boss? I mean, unless, of course, you work at the church. <laughs> the bottom line is that many of us, we struggle to submit to our leaders. This idea of submission, in many ways, is a very difficult concept to get our minds around because it's difficult to get our hearts around. We love independence. We love autonomy. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like somebody being over us. We naturally, in our sinful, fallen condition, resist this. We oftentimes don't like to submit to those over us unless we think they're worthy, they've earned it, or they treat us in a way that we appreciate. And I want you just to notice here that this is foreign from what Peter says. He says our submission to the authorities over us has nothing to do with these things at all. It has everything to do with our understanding of our relationship to the Lord God Almighty. It has everything to do with our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our submission ultimately is to him. 
Now, I want to kind of place a caveat on all of this. Listen, we are not in the same context. Slaves in this context couldn't just leave their position and status of life. They were generally stuck there. It was very difficult to move themselves out of a position of slavery. That's not our problem today. If, if we don't like a job that we have, if we don't like an employer, if we don't kind of get the gratification we think we deserve from our job, we have every freedom to leave. Now, we are still responsible to do that in a respectful way, in a way that honors the Lord, but that's a freedom we get to enjoy. So I'm not saying that if you are in a terrible position in your job, you must stay there. That's not what this is talking about. But, but we need to consider that we are sometimes stuck in these places where we must choose to respond in a way that will be pleasing to God and not necessarily pleasing to our flesh. There are a few things that we must embrace as we just consider this, this verse, and I want to just kind of draw some thoughts out of this passage for you. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. I just want you to notice this. We've kind of hit on this, but let me just make it abundantly clear. Notice this first. Everyone must submit. Everyone must submit. The very concept of submission assumes, listen, that this world has God-given structures and authorities. Structure and authority is not evil. It's not a man-made invention that is a byproduct of sin. It is a divinely instituted structure that is used by God to govern this universe. If I could say it like this, listen, structure and hierarchy exist because God exists. God is a God of order and structure. God is a God of authority and power. Therefore, we see God reflected in the very authority structures that he has placed in the world. It is a reflection of him, and it's important to understand and appreciate that. And that means this, that we must learn to organize our lives within those structures. It's a way to give honor to God. It's a way to acknowledge God in our lives, in every little area. And so really, uh, we need to learn this idea of we need to serve in our setting, wherever God has placed us, whatever he has called us to. Even if we suspect our leaders are wrong, even when they are unjust and harsh with us, as Peter identifies here. He says that our submission is not dependent upon how we are treated necessarily. We should subordinate ourselves to legitimate authority that is placed over us by God so long as the call upon our life is not to sin. You say, are there any exceptions for resisting authority? I mentioned this last week, at least in the second service. I fear I failed to mention it in the first, so some of you may be confused. But let me just say this. Listen, th there is one reason partic in particular we are given um, by God that allows us to disobey the authorities in our life, and that is this. We can disobey if they forbid what God commands or command what God forbids, okay? They call you to sin, and your allegiance is first and foremost to the Lord. That's in every authority structure in your life. That's the reality. But here, we just need to notice that Peter isn't making qualifications, so you're like, well, what about this? What about this? Listen, I'm intentionally not trying to qualify everything because Peter's not qualifying things. I, I think we need to hear this. We, we need to stop fighting against this. All, oftentimes, we try to make all of these qualifications and justifications because we simply don't want to acknowledge what the Bible says. We, we want to resist it, and we looked at this last week, that to resist what God is saying to us is ultimately to rebel against him, 
To resist the authority structures God has put in place is, in many ways, to rebel against God who has ordained them and placed them in our lives. We need to yield to authority and learn to defer to it so long as they're not calling us into sin. Secondly, I want you to notice this. So everyone must submit. Secondly, notice this, um, that our submission is supposed to be voluntary. That's why the call upon our lives is to submit ourselves. This is how we serve in our setting. We, we willingly submit ourselves. Actually, the, the grammar that Peter uses here for servants be subject, there's a reflexive nature to the verb he uses. In other words, the, the command is actually a call to learn to yield yourself. And the sense is this, that, that God doesn't want us to have submission forced upon us. He doesn't want us to live in such a way so that the authorities over us have to force our will, have to make us submit through various means. He doesn't want that. He wants Christians to not be those who are so rebellious because of our sinful passions that we resist those authorities. He wants us to be those who willingly subject ourselves to authority. This is a, a powerful statement especially to our world, who often resists authority as well. And if I could say it again, um, this passage actually mentions that we're going to have lots of people who are not worthy of being submitted to because of the way they're treating us. But the call here is to submit regardless. Why? Because the Lord has placed them over us. And when we submit ourselves to them, we are submitting ourselves to God. Third thing I want to draw from this is this, that we submit with respect. And that qualification is so important, lest we get the wrong idea of what it means to submit. You see, submission is not simply about external adherence. It's, it's, it's not simply doing what you're told. In the Bible, that's never the full definition of submission. That is certainly a part of it, but submission always involves the, the condition of your heart. And so this idea of respect really gets to the heart level. He's telling us that we are to submit with a sense of reverence and honor. This is the same word that's used for fearing the Lord. You see, he's tying it again into this idea that when we submit to those authorities in the right way, we're actually demonstrating our fear of the Lord, our love of him, our, our desire for him and for his glory. This is very, very difficult at times. I understand that. I think all of us understand this. But I think it's helpful to think of it in this light. Listen, if you just put yourself back in this context for a minute, it's not, you know, we're kind of jumping out into our work world, into our current context, but let's kind of transport ourselves back into this ancient context, and let's remember that what we have is not nearly as bad as they had it. So I think that helps us develop a principle that can kind of propel us forward in this. You see, if God can command a harder thing, that slaves respectfully submit to harsh masters, surely we can submit to difficult superiors in our lives. Isn't that true? You say, okay, how can I do this better? How can I do this better if I think about my, my work life, if I think about maybe um, the, the setting of my life where I am supposed to submit, to wherever that is, you can broaden this to not just work, but to other areas of your life, wherever there is a, uh, an authority. If you're a child, you can look at this in your, ho in your home um, um, there's a variety of ways we can display this hierarchy and glorify God. Let me just give you four ways. I'll apply it specifically to this concept of, of working, um, but here's the first thing you can do to really do this well. Work. Work. And I, I mean, it sounds really simple, but I, I mean that sincerely. I mean, do what you're supposed to do, right? If you got a job, do what you're supposed to do. There's no excuse for not, for not doing the work that you've been hired to do, that you're supposed to do, that you've committed to do, 
work. Now, the second thing, listen, kind of plays off that. All of these really play off this idea because it goes deeper than that. We need to go a level deeper here. So here, let me give you this one. Um, We need to work hard or work diligently. You have to think, what we're trying to do here, what Peter's trying to do is help us understand um, that the way in which we live in this context can actually display the gospel. It can be a powerful testimony of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, there is something special about somebody who works hard. Every employer likes a hard worker, amen? You got, a, you got employees, you love hard workers. Yeah, got a couple amens there. But you see, this is a way in which we demonstrate our faith. We work hard, not just because we care about our employer, although we should. We work hard for the Lord. Thirdly, notice this, we need to work honestly. You know, so working hard can often separate us from many in the world. Isn't it a sad thing when Christians aren't hard workers? Like when Christians are lazy? That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a terrible testimony. It just is. It's a terrible testimony, too, when workers are unfaithful with the resources they've been given. When they steal from their employees, whether that be resources or time or money, whatever it is. I mean, what we see a lot of this in the work world. It is hard to find trustworthy employees. And Christians ought to be the most honest and trustworthy employees of all. You should be known in others. Here's what I'm saying to you. You should be known in your workplace as somebody who works, as somebody who works hard, and as somebody who works honestly. You should be somebody who uh, can be given responsibility and trusted with that responsibility. This is a way in which you can point to your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in the midst of a whole lot of people in this world who care only about themselves and so will only do what's suitable for them. Let me give you the last one here. Um, Work joyfully. You really want to separate yourself from the world? Work joyfully. We're getting down into the, the attitude, right? Nothing is worse than a Christian who walks into work with a grumpy, terrible attitude. Why? Because, listen, um, that kind of attitude shows a discontentment with the gift of work that the Lord has given. That, that kind of attitude actually shows a lack of gratitude to the Lord. I'm not saying you've got to be whistling all day long or singing tunes, but, but I, just, I just, you know what, there, isn't there something, something noticeable? And this is the point, you should stick out uh, amongst all the people who are there. Again, listen, driven by this idea, we've got a wrong perspective oftentimes of vocation, okay? We look at vocation so often as this is supposed to be the place where I'm supposed to find my happiness. And therefore, if I'm not happy, it means I shouldn't be here. That's not true. We're supposed to find, but by the way, if you find some joy in your work, if you love your work, that's a good thing. Praise God. You should be more joyful than anybody in the workplace. But listen, our joy in the workplace isn't dependent upon the kind of work we have to do. We are called to rejoice always in the Lord. And that sometimes, even in the midst of hard work and, and injustice in the workplace, it's our joy in the midst of those circumstances that can be the most powerful testimony of all. You see, Peter's calling us to understand this, this radical concept that my message is magnified by how I serve in my setting. So embrace the mandate of a servant. Submit yourself. And you can do it even when it's hard, If you do this next, secondly, understand the motivation of a servant, honor God. This is to be the dominating motivation. How do you get through um, being treated um, unjustly? How do you get through suffering even for doing what's right? Here's what he says. You have to have a deeper motivation than the here and now. 
You have to have a deeper motivation than, than what your boss thinks of you, than what your, your coworkers think of you, than how it feels in the moment. You have to have a motivation that transcends all of that. You have to have a motivation that keeps your gaze fixed upon the glory of the Lord. Your desire, your supreme desire, needs to be his honor, his glory. You need to be concerned about making sure you're pleasing in his sight. He says in verse 19 and 20, for this is a gracious thing. He doesn't mean that it's, an, it's a gift of grace. The word gracious there can actually be translated as commendable, an honorable thing. In other words, it's being looked at as, as something pleasing. He says, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. There it is in the sight of God. You see that there? You see what his concern is? It's how you respond in the sight of God. Your employer may never know and see what you're doing. Those in authority over you may never know truly where your heart is at, but God sees it all. He sees your heart. and We need to take that in and not take it for granted. And here he gives us, again, this powerful reason for our submission. And I want you to see, he actually tells us here um, that verses 19 and 20 belong together. He bookends them, okay? This is kind of a, a literary device that he uses to tell us, keep these two things together. He bookends these verses with this phrase, it's a gracious thing. So gracious thing here in verse 19, gracious thing here in verse 20, and he says, everything in here between this explains how you're going to do this. Again, the idea here is uh, commendable, honoring to God, pleasing in his sight, in other words, how we respond is not simply commanded by God, it's actually being evaluated by God. And honoring him again, let me just say it so clearly, it is to be our supreme motivation um, in our life, but especially when we are suffering and enduring maybe oppression. He's looking on in our lives, he's peering in, he's, he's gazing at our heart. He's watching to see how we respond. And he's looking for us to be considering all the times. I want to hear, Lord, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to be pleasing in the Lord's sight. He's relating this response specifically to suffering injustice. That is a result, notice as he uses the word, of doing good. That's the phrase he repeatedly uses, doing good for seeking to honor the Lord, for, for doing the right thing that pleases God. So in other words, what he's saying, that this isn't just suffering in the world. This isn't just having a hard time because your boss is unfair in the workplace and he's unfair to everybody, although that it applies. Uh, but I want you to see most specifically what this is saying. This is talking about you being a Christian in your workplace, being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, people knowing about it and watching you live your life for Jesus and choosing to treat you poorly because of it. Now, for many of us, this isn't even a problem because nobody in our work workplace knows we're a Christian. 
That's a little tongue-in-cheek, but I think you, you kind of take my point. There is a sense in which we should want to be evaluated by the people around us. I want you to know, I want you to hear that loud and clear. There is a sense in which we should be desiring people to look at our lives so that they can see the gospel being lived out. Now, here's the problem with that. It's very difficult for people to examine our lives really closely if they really don't know that we're followers of Jesus. Sometimes they're going to do it. Sometimes they're going to initially see, and that's okay too, by the way. I'm not saying you walk in with a bullhorn and start, I'm a Christian, everybody watch me today. What I am saying, though, is this, that if you love Jesus Christ, you're going to talk about your faith. You're not just going to try and live it. You're going to talk about your faith. You can't help but talk about the things you love most in life. And Christians, we need to be talking about our faith. I'm not saying to, to um, waste your company's time, and I know you can think, not waste, but you know what I'm saying. I'm not saying to do this on your boss's dime that you need to take up, like that's a form of theft. But what I am saying is this, that you should be known as a follower of Jesus Christ, and you should be inviting people to inspect your life, and so you therefore need to take stock of how you're actually living your life. It's powerful accountability as much as it is powerful testimony. We need to be, he says here, mindful of how God sees our actions. And so again, he's, he's reminding us, listen, that in the way we submit to earthly authority, we are demonstrating that we submit to a higher authority. There are times when we will, as Christians, because specifically because we are Christians and we are living for the glory of Jesus Christ, that we will suffer persecution. There are people in this room who have suffered at their workplace because they are Christians. They have been mocked, they have been um, maligned, they have been slandered, they have lost positions, they have been overlooked for a career advancement, they have been excluded from friendships and opportunities, and the Bible says, that's okay. You're suffering for doing good. And, and what, what he calls us to here is to endure that suffering. Not, not, to, not to go, oh my goodness, this is terrible. Oh no, it's costing me too much. Or, or you know what, I need to assimilate more so that I can win more people. No, he says, don't be afraid to be different. Don't be afraid to be maligned. And, and instead of fighting to make yourself more loved by people in the wrong ways, endure suffering. He says it twice there, endure suffering for doing good. Endure suffering for doing good. He says, don't, don't give in, don't capitulate. And part of the reason he can say this is because he knows that if, if you're punished now for following Jesus Christ, it's going to be okay because you're going to be rewarded later for following Jesus Christ when it counts. Do you remember what he's already said in chapter one? That we have an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. There is something that awaits us that we have to look forward to. Don't try to get all the good things in this life and lose the best things in the next life. We are pleasing to God. We are honoring him when we endure suffering. But I want you to, to see this. It's not just that we endure, that we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. You have to see that there's a very specific way in which he qualifies this. Notice it there in verse 20. Look down at the verse with me. He says, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Sorry, I skipped right over it. Um, right back there in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. Okay, That's a very important qualification. Now, um, the way this is translated is helpful, but I think it, it doesn't quite always capture the sense of what, 
uh, Peter is intending to say. Literally, the word used for mindful there is translated elsewhere in the Bible as conscience, talking about having a clear conscience before God. In other words, do you see how that plays in? Like, what does it mean to be mindful of God? It means to do everything to make sure you have a clear conscience before God. You're conscious of God, and therefore your conscience desires to please God. That's the idea here. The behavior of Christian servants must always be motivated by this awareness that God is watching and that he will both reward those who are faithful, listen, and he will vindicate you in the final day. I came across this helpful quote by Wayne Grudem, it'll be on the screen behind me here. It says this, it is not the stoic, self-motivated tenacity which holds out against all opposition, but rather the opposite, the trusting awareness of God's presence and never-failing care, which is the key to righteous suffering. It is the confidence that God will ultimately right all wrongs, which enables a Christian to submit to an unjust matter without resentment, rebelliousness, self-pity, or despair. I think that's such a helpful quote. And you see, when we suffer mindful of God, we can endure unjust suffering. Eyes fixed upon God, knowing his eyes are fixed upon us, knowing he sees our heart and he sees all of the injustice and we can leave it in his hands. This is what honors God. Bearing up, listen, under unjust suffering shines a bright and breathtaking light on the grace, glory, and value of the God we serve so that others might stop and take notice, maybe even asking the question, why are these people so loyal to their God and so humbled by their God. Our message is magnified by how we serve in our setting and we see that thirdly when we consider the model of a servant, follow Jesus. The model of a servant is none other than Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where Peter draws our heart to. He pulls us back into the gospel and he says, this is really the key to all of this. Look to Jesus. He says in verse 21, for to this you have been called. This is the will of God for you. This idea of unjust suffering. That's what he's talking about. This is the calling upon your life. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He reminds us so powerfully that we have been called to this. We spend so much time questioning whether or not our suffering is, is a part of the will of God, and the definitive answer of Scripture is yes. Now, that does not mean that suffering because of our own sin can be simply blamed on God. It doesn't mean that all suffering in this life is equal. This is most specifically, again, talking about suffering for following Jesus. And the Bible wants you to understand and wants me to understand that if we choose to follow Jesus, we are signing up for a certain kind of suffering, for unjust suffering. Suffering, in other words, um, injustice, is not a detour we must take on the path to our eternal inheritance. It's actually the divinely appointed means for receiving the inheritance. This is what Paul said in Acts 14.22. That we must suffer through many tribulations to enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, we shouldn't be expecting to escape this suffering 
but actually expecting to experience this suffering. You say, really? Why? Why is this, why is this the will of God? Well, Peter says, because of Jesus. Look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. Did Jesus not have to suffer? Did, was, was Jesus allowed to escape suffering for doing the will of the Father in this life? Jesus embraced the road of unjust suffering as the path that he must walk. And so Peter says, look at Jesus. He's the example for what it means to suffer injustice, and he's the one who teaches you how to suffer injustice well. Like, pattern your life after him, Peter says. So how exactly did he do this? Well, I want you just to notice what it says in verse 21, that Christ suffered for you. This is such a powerful statement that Peter gives to us. He suffered for you, or, or, or he suffered in your place. This is Peter describing what theologians call substitutionary atonement, that someone, Jesus Christ, stood in your place and received what you deserve. He suffered for sin that wasn't his. He was punished for something he didn't do. You ever been punished for something you didn't do? Every once in a while, I accidentally punish the wrong child. <laughs> Find out later and have to do some repenting. But have you, ever, you ever suffered for something you didn't, you ever been blamed for something you actually didn't do and it resulted in something pretty significant? A friend of mine was telling me about a movie he just watched um, based on a true story about a lawyer who devoted his life to uh, trying to serve those um, inmates on death row because there were so many cases of injustice, so many men sitting on death row who actually, as, as time and truth kind of go hand in hand, as it was proved through this lawyer's efforts, were actually innocent. They got the wrong guy. I mean, can you just imagine sitting on death row, getting ready to be put to death for a crime you didn't commit? The Bible says Jesus sat on death row not just for a crime he didn't commit, but for crimes he didn't commit. And for crimes you and I committed. It's like Jesus is walking down death row and he's looking in the cells and he's opening the doors and, and he sees each one of us sitting in a cell and we're awaiting our death sentence and he says, all right, you're gone, you're out, I'm gonna die for you. And he walks to the next cell and he opens the door and he looks you in the eye and he says, you deserve death row, you're actually guilty, but I'm gonna die for you. This is an arbitrary or ambiguous kind of dying for sins. This is specific, willful knowledge that he is dying for you and for every sin you've ever committed. This is deeply intimate and personal. And can I just say what should be obvious to you right now? That is the height of injustice. And Jesus would look at his disciples and say, a servant is not greater than his master. You're gonna suffer because I suffered. 
but I have left you an example to follow. Our suffering, listen, it can't be compared to his, of course. But the way he responded is a model for how we must choose to respond. Christ suffered for you in the greatest way. Listen, Christian, listen, this is so important. Listen, now you get to suffer for him in a far lesser way. Peter is reaching back now into this next verse into the Old Testament. And to demonstrate that Christ is the model of what it means to suffer and to suffer well, he goes back to Isaiah chapter 53, which if you know anything about Isaiah 53, the title we use for it is what? The Suffering Servant. It's a picture of how Jesus, the the servant of God, the perfect servant of God, suffered so willingly, so painfully, so unjustly, And in verse 22, look at what he says. He tells us not just that Jesus suffered, but he tells us how he responded. Look at this. He gives us really four ways in which Jesus responded that we need to take note of and put into practice in our lives. He says he committed no sin. Jesus just refused to sin. He was suffering unjustly for the sins of the world. He was the only perfect righteous one. He didn't do anything. He didn't deserve anything, yet he took it all. And Jesus, Jesus took it all, he did it all without sinning one bit, even in response to all of the injustice, and then he kind of narrows this down for us. So, so listen, the first thing that we need to make sure we commit to doing is we need to refuse to sin, even when we are suffering injustice. Refuse to sin, align your life with the word of God, look at Jesus and do what he did. Well, how did he respond? Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He refused to lie. He refused to mislead. He wouldn't try to to get out of it in a deceitful way. He wouldn't try to, to shift the blame on somebody else. He took it all upon himself. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He was mocked and humiliated. I mean, he was publicly embarrassed in front of everybody. He was stripped down almost naked. And then he was verbally and physically assaulted in ways that we can't possibly imagine. But when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't didn't return insult for insult. He refused. He refused to speak in a way that would dishonor and displease the Lord. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. He refused to threaten. In fact, do you, do, you remember, do you remember the words of Jesus as he hung on the cross? Do you remember what he said? Do you, he didn't threaten, I'm going to come back and get you. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Man, this is so powerful. Like, how do I suffer when I'm being treated by authorities in, in a way that's unjust? Look to Jesus. It's not just what he did, it's how he did it. And you know, the, the instinctive response of human beings when treated so poorly is to respond in like manner, isn't it? That's, that's the sinful fleshly reaction, right? We get punched, we punch back twice as hard. It's sad, isn't it, that we're so proud of ourselves when we put somebody in their place? We think we've done something so honorable so important, and meanwhile, we've just dishonored Jesus. We somehow relish 
the idea that we can one-up someone's sin against us with a greater sin against them. You know what Jesus said when we're suffering persecution? When we're being mistreated? Here's what he said. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 41. He said this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what we love. We want that. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anybody forces you to go one mile, go with him too. You see, what Jesus told us to do, he did himself. He modeled it for us. He showed us. And I just want to maybe give you a a helpful reminder. If you haven't got this already, maybe this will boil it down to you. Um, The next time you're treated, you're treated unjustly, you have to endure suffering. Before you give to others what you think they deserve, remember that God has not given you what you deserve. Do you see how our response can magnify the message? The way we respond can put the gospel on display. We get to live the gospel out in real time, in real moments. And the way we do that here is by considering the model of a servant. We look to Jesus. We follow Jesus. You say, how did Jesus do this? I know he was God, but listen, in his humanity, he teaches us something so powerful, and we're called to do it the same way he did it. Finally, notice this. My message is magnified by how I apply the means of a servant. Trust God. This is, this is the means that Jesus used in his humanity. It was faith in God. It was trust in God. He walked by faith and not by sight. He left things in the hands of the Father. You'll notice the, the sharp contrast here. He didn't do these things, but what did he do? Look at, look at verse um, 23, the last half there. But continued. Like this was the pattern of his life. This is always what he did. And in the hardest moments of his life, he didn't stop doing it. He kept going forward in trusting God. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He knew that God would vindicate. He knew that God was sovereign. He knew that God would right all wrongs. And he was, listen, he was happy to leave it there in the hands of the Father. And he drives us again deeper into the gospel to help us grab this. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Sinful responses are natural only to people who depend on themselves and believe that God does not have control over the situation. Let me say that again. That's really, really critical to understand. Sinful responses are natural. It's the normal gut reaction only to people who depend on themselves and believe that God does not have control over the situation. But to the suffering person, the person who trusts deeply in God and believes that God is indeed in control of every situation, there is another response, one that is perfectly exhibited by Jesus Christ. Trust God. The word entrusted there, it it literally means to hand over. Isn't this so beautiful? To hand over 
to, to, to deliver, to commit something to the, I don't know what it is here that maybe you're, I don't know what it is you think you're in charge of today and that is actually derailing your spiritual life, but what a powerful reminder that those who choose to walk in selfishness, those who believe they can be self-sustained will not be able to stand in the long run. It is only those who entrust everything to the Lord, committing it to him, God, I can't, I can't control this. You're the one who's sovereign over it. You are God and I am not. And I get, I feel a way to this, just, you know, I, 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 I know the battle of trying to take things into my own hands. I constantly struggle with this. I'm constantly trying to rely on myself. And you know what, I, I know this is, this is such kind of a, the, the sinful human response is to grab a hold of things, to do it yourself, to rely on your own strength. I get it. This is, this is a battle I wage almost every day. It is a, a battle I wage every day of my own life. But you want to know what, what helps us break uh, free of self-sufficiency? You say, what can I do to help break free of self-sufficiency? Here it is. Increase your prayer life. Okay? You want to make sure you're not a self-sufficient person. You want to be a, a person who depends upon God. There is nothing greater in the Christian life for growing dependence and demonstrating dependence than a life of prayer. There isn't. There is. Prayer is the means by which we say, God, you're in control. God, I'm releasing control. God, I need you. Listen, prayerlessness in your life is a statement that you think you don't need God. And so rather, listen, your gut reaction when, when you're suffering, when you face something you have to endure and you need your, your tendency is to trust in yourself, you want to make sure you free yourself of that? Here's how you do it. You get on your knees as fast as you can and you learn to stay there longer than you do. Don't write out a to-do list. Don't strategize a plan. Get on your knees and go to the one who is sovereign over every single thing in your life. Throw yourself at his mercy. Let your heart be adjusted and tuned to his sovereignty, and then you will be able to stand up and walk in the paths of righteousness. Verse 24, so powerful. Again, what Peter is doing here is he's quoting from Isaiah 53, specifically verse 6, this idea that he laid on him the iniquity of us all. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Again, can you just see that he's driving us deeper into the gospel? This means, again, that God counted our sins against Christ. He treats our sins as if they belonged to Jesus Christ. At the cross, on that piece of wood, he treated Christ as if Jesus committed all of our sins so that he could treat us as if we lived Christ's perfect life. It's the great exchange of the gospel. And by his wounds we are healed. You know, this is a reminder of what we have trusted God for in the first place. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, here's your hope today. By his wounds you have been healed. Spiritually speaking, your sin that caused a rift between you and God, your sin that deserved punishment in hell for eternity, has been taken by Jesus Christ, and as a result, you receive spiritual healing. You get new life. You get forgiveness and freedom. You get the hope of an eternal inheritance that's kept in heaven for you. He takes all of our sin. We get all his grace. This is the only way to be saved, by the way. 
you want spiritual healing from fever? Unbeliever here today, how, you say, how do I get the spiritual healing? You look to Jesus Christ and you put all your trust in him. You believe in him. That the son of God came and died for you, absorbed the full weight of God's wrath. He rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin and death. He's exalted to the right hand of the father where he currently sits on high. He rules and reigns over the universe and one day he's coming back again. The question is, will he come back and receive you into his presence? The answer is yes, if you learned to throw yourself at his mercy and trust in him. And if God did that for you already in salvation, how much more so can you trust him in all things? See the Peter making that argument? The purpose of Christ's death was not only to provide forgiveness of sins, by the way, but to empower his people to die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what he says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So the gospel frees you from the power of sin and you are filled with the power of the spirit of God. And now, listen, when you face suffering in this life, whatever that suffering is, but specifically and especially for the suffering of Jesus, guess what? You don't have to respond in your sinful flesh anymore. You don't have to dishonor the Lord any longer. You don't have to revile those who revile you. You don't have to speak unkind um, to those who are unkind to you. You don't have to treat them the way they treat you. Instead, you can treat them like Jesus because Jesus Christ lives within you. You can be Jesus to them. You can show them Jesus through how you live. But I want you to hear this. This is kind of at the heart of what Peter is getting at. You can't live like Jesus until you have fully submitted to Jesus. This is how we live as servants of Christ. We trust God. That is, we fully surrender and submit to him. We continue to bow the knee to him as Lord. And notice what he says here in verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what is he doing with these verses? Why, why end like that? You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to remind you that God is worthy of being trusted. For once we were condemned and ruled by sin, but now we who are wandering have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That, that language reminds us that we have put our trust in him and that we can keep putting our trust in him. It reminds us that God is our master, the Lord to whom we must submit. But you see, we only submit to him when we put our trust fully in him. And so this passage also reminds us that we submit and surrender to him. We trust him because we are convinced of who he is and how he loves us. He is the loving shepherd who cares for us. He is always lovingly leading his sheep. And he is the great overseer of our souls. He faithfully watches over every part of your life. He faithfully guards your heart and your soul. And when you know this about your God, you can continue to surrender and submit yourself to him. Will you trust him in your suffering? Will you submit to him in everything? This is how we serve in our setting, and this is how we magnify our message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for how it God draws our hearts toward you. Thank you for the gospel, Lord. Thank you for how uh, your spirit and your word have taken us deeper into the gospel, describing and reminding for us, Lord, not just what you have done, but how you have done it. 
Thank you for what the gospel has accomplished for us, the forgiveness of sins, a reconciliation with the Father, but thank you, God, for how it teaches us and instructs us on how to live this life out faithfully for you. We want to desperately, Lord, magnify our message by living our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. God, would you help us to do that as you draw our hearts continually back to the gospel, as our gaze is continually fixed upon Jesus Christ. God, help us to live as he lived, to suffer as he suffered, to glorify you as he has glorified you. We want to do this, Lord, because we love you, knowing and being reminded again this morning, Lord, that you have first loved us. You are our good shepherd. You are the kind and faithful Father who oversees our souls. Receive now our praise. May it be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.